The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Philemon, verses 1 through 3. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to, to Christ. Christ. Thanks again. Two readings today. Uh, good morning. Uh, good to see you on this Mother's Day. And my name is Scott. If we haven't had a chance to meet, uh, have met most of you, but I do see a few people out there as I do every Sunday. Uh, I'd love to, love to connect with you after the service if you have a minute for that. So today we're starting a new series. It's a short one, just four sermons on the shortest book uh, that Paul the Apostle wrote called Philemon. And uh, I'll get to that in a second, uh, but first I want to tell you a little bit about when I grew up. When I grew up, my mother had a non-negotiable uh, for my brother and I, and her, non, her non-negotiable was that we treat each other with love, warmth, respect, honor. And when we didn't do that, which was a lot, I was six years older and uh, large and in charge or big for my britches, as my grandpa used to say. Um, when, when there wasn't peace and harmony between my brother and I, when there wasn't grace and peace between us, uh, mom would intervene. And it would usually go like this, Scott, your brother is not your slave. And Matt, I know it's hard, but give him another chance. And that's how it went. Uh, we had that conversation a lot until he turned 12 and then he saw the light that he didn't have to submit to my every wish. And then we actually became friends. And my brother is one of my best friends in the world. So this is a very similar but even more intense situation that we're talking about here. This, this goes way beyond basic sibling rivalry and differences and conflict, uh, even while being sibling conflict between Philemon, the recipient of the letter, who is, wait for it, a Christian slave owner a Christian slave owner. And Paul is writing on behalf of an escaped slave named Onesimus who's currently living as a fugitive. And what both Philemon and Onesimus have in common is that they were both introduced into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul is urging both of them in different ways to do a cease and desist on the slave-master relationship and to live as brothers. As a whole, this letter is calling for two things, personal holiness and social holiness. The two go together, and Jesus put it this, put it this way. Personal holiness would mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And social holiness would be to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus defined what a neighbor is in his sense of the word when he put a 
uh, Jew and a Samaritan in a parable, and one took care of the other. We know it as the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Basically, here's what this letter is after. It's, 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 it's what Paul's after in a lot of his letters. Paul with a maternal instinct, which is really a Jesus instinct because it was Jesus who, who said, I've longed to gather my people under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks. Paul here is trying to gather two children of God, two younger brothers in the faith together who have not been together with each other. Because one of the things that, that, that belonging to Jesus Christ and experience the warmth of belonging from Jesus Christ is that people who don't have even the slightest chance of moving toward one another in love outside of Christ, suddenly inside of Christ have both the reason and the ability to move toward one another in love and offer one another the warmth of belonging. And the fact that we have this letter which was written chiefly to Philemon, but also to his whole family. And there's a request here that it also goes to the whole church that meets in his house. Paul wants this to be a public thing to apply some redemptive pressure to change, okay? But it was a small community. It was a little house church. And the fact that we have this letter indicates that in all likelihood, something magnificent and otherworldly and counterculture happened in this relationship. And so, so what I want to do is talk about two asks from the Apostle Paul and then the end game that he has in mind and that Jesus Christ has in mind, not only for these couple of people, but for all of his children. So the first ask is to Onesimus, who is the escaped slave, who, who it says here has been helping Paul as Paul has been under house arrest. Paul is in prison. And this young man, Onesimus, out of honor and respect for his older brother in Christ, is trying to help bear the burden and lift the load off of Paul's back because he's, he's in jail for bad reasons, for unfair, unjust reasons. And what he asks Onesimus to do is to go back. Go back to the home and the situation that you fled from and it makes sense for anyone to ask, how on earth could Paul ask this man to do this? You know, one of the mysteries, and I think that, that this is part of the answer to that question, one of the mysteries that, that we have to contend with is, is the way that God seems to change the world over and over and over again by locating his people into the position of the vulnerable underdog. Think about it. We've said this before. The whole Bible, you guys, most influential book in the history of books, the letters and stories and poetry written in the Bible to, meant to connect us with God and help us love our neighbor was almost exclusively written by people who were slaves, prisoners, exiles, or awaiting their own execution. Almost the whole Bible written from that context, from underdogs in vulnerable situations. And here we have Paul writing from prison. This is actually one of four letters that are, that are known as the prison letters from the Apostle Paul. And it's interesting, in none of those four letters does Paul ever panic that he's been unfairly put in jail. 
He never puts up a fight. And that is not to say that you shouldn't put up a fight when, when there's an unfairness or an injustice is happening. But Paul sees a higher purpose, and he actually has this sense of belief based on his past experience, based on his understanding of the Old Testament and how God's worked through history, that the harder it gets for you, the more likely it is for God to do something magnificent in and through your life. And so what Paul is doing is he's basically saying to this young man, for a little while, just trust me in this. Take the long view, for a little while, be as I am. Right now I am a prisoner for Jesus Christ and I'm asking you to be a prisoner of a different kind. For a little while, I want you to go back and see what God can do and I'm gonna send you, I'm gonna put this letter in your hand that's gonna help you and that's gonna advocate for you on the other side in ways that you haven't been advocated before, for before. So what is Onesimus returning to? So, so a little bit of cultural history lesson will help us with that uh, question. At that day, and in that day and in that age, one-third, one out of every three people in Roman society was a slave, was owned as property by somebody else, by a free person. And what Paul is saying is, this is a worldly way of living and thinking, to think that one person who bears the image of God could in any circumstance own as property another person who bears the image of God. You are not your own. And if you are not your own, then that person's not your own either. You've both been bought with a price, Paul would say. You both belong to Christ. You were slaves, both of you to sin. Now you are slaves to Christ, who's the most benevolent master that you'll ever have or ever know. You know, serving as a slave of Christ feels a lot more like freedom than it does like servitude because it is freedom. But how is it possible for there to be such a thing as a Christian slave owner? Right? That's what he is. And, and, and what does Paul call him? He calls him beloved my beloved fellow worker in the Lord. I mean, that, that's very conflicting language. How is this even possible? This is what happens when the church gets caught in the draft of the secondhand smoke of the society in which it lives. We have to be vigilant to understand what is of God, what is of the world, and, and what that means for the way that we move forward. And, and there was some secondhand smoke breathing here, where the church had been so entrenched in this environment that it was assumed this is just the way things are. And I imagine that some of you in your work situations, you live with similar tensions, where you're like, you know, this is my Christian self, and I can only bring about 80% of that person into my work, because if I brought all of this person into this climate, it wouldn't work, because this is the way things are. Okay, so in the first century, this was the, the way things were, according to people who bought into this. N.T. Wright wrote this. He said to them in the first century, this was as natural as owning a car or a TV is for people in the West today. Most people would wonder how you could get on without a slave. To us, slavery is now abhorrent, as it should be. To them, it was like electricity, gas, or cars. Okay, it's easy now, <clears throat> 2,000 years later, 
or you know, post-civil rights, wherever you want to position us in history to say, we are so much more enlightened and so much more virtuous than those other past generations. Forgetting that our grandmas would be so offended by some of the things that we believe and do. And our grandchildren will be so offended by some of the things that we are doing now that we don't even see. And, and are, are, are accepting now as acceptable that we don't even see or don't even think about. You know, there's that one hit wonder band called Mike and the Mechanics. You gotta be of a certain age to remember them, I suppose. It's called The Living Years, where it says every generation blames the one before. So in the past two years, I'm gonna poke a little bit. So sorry to do this on Mother's Day, but I'm gonna poke, as mothers sometimes do, when their kids are being hypocritical. So in the last couple years, right, the, the whole justice conversation has, has been at a fever pitch. Helpfully so and irritatingly so. In healthy ways and in very unhealthy ways, okay? I'm not going to get into all that right now, but one, one, of the, one of the movements on Twitter, on Christian Twitter, that happened maybe a year or so ago was a movement to ban the books of George Whitfield, who is one of the revivalists in the Great Awakening, and Jonathan Edwards, who um, was the first president of Princeton University. His body is buried right outside of Princeton Seminary, and you know one of the most brilliant theologians that America ever knew. But but we need to ban their books because they both own slaves. Now here's where it gets complicated, and here's what our Children's children may be looking back in judgment on us in about 50 to 75 years, possibly. The strongest disapprovals on Twitter were tweeted from devices that were at least partially made in sweatshops by slaves. Just let you sit with that for a minute. Well, what will we do without our iPhones? What would we do without our device? What would we do without Twitter? What would we do without? Okay, you want to pass judgment? Jesus had some teaching about logs and specs and about, about looking for the log, the plank in our own eye first before we, it's appropriate to remove a speck where a speck is. It's appropriate to say, gosh, that was wrong for Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and others to own something. It was wrong, morally wrong. We see that now in hindsight. But that was their secondhand smoke in the same way that so much secondhand smoke we breathe in and say, oh, that's just the way things are. You realize the entire pornography industry is built on trafficking and slavery of young girls and women? Like anybody who's ever engaged with pornography, you've, in, you've participated in slave driving. Happy Mother's Day, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but you guys, this is, this is real life stuff. This is where the gospel meets the ground and hits your life on Mother's Day. Sorry to mess it. We've got cookies to make you feel better on the outside of the sanctuary. We may ask how Paul could call Philemon, who owns slaves, a beloved fellow worker. It, Look, if you can call anyone who owns a device made under those conditions beloved, you can understand on some level, right? 
You know, Christianity has come as you are as well. He calls him a beloved fellow worker right after he rebukes him and, tell, and, and tells him to change the whole way he's living his life at great cost to himself. See, he, he calls him a beloved fellow worker because he knows everyone is unfinished. Everyone has major blind spots. Everyone in Christ is still an incomplete work in process. Everyone needs grace. Everyone. You know, Christianity is categorically and unapologetically a come-as-you-are religion. If you think that there is any sin that is so far gone that it's outside of the reach of God's grace, you're probably not inside the reach of God's grace because you don't understand it yet. You don't understand yourself yet. It is a come-as-you-are religion, but don't mistake that for a stay-as-you-are religion. The Father's arms are open wide, and the path is narrow. This first, now let's talk about this. So the second ask is to Philemon, the slave owner. Christ in you is going to make you different in the world. Christ in you is going to cause you to stand out as different as counterculture for the healing of culture, as counter-society for the healing of society by stopping the slavery nonsense and treat this man as a brother. And I'll bet you, I will bet you, he will be a better worker for you as a free man than he ever was under the controlling hand of coercion. He won't want to escape you if you treat him as a brother. He won't want to steal from you if you treat him as a brother. He's had plenty of opportunity to escape Paul, but hasn't. You know, grace to you and peace. This is, this is subversive. This, is, this would have been considered socio-political tyranny to put those two words together because grace to you was a Greek salutation, peace to you was a Jewish salutation. Those two groups did not go together any more than fans of AOC and fans of Donald Trump go together. Grace to you and peace. It sounds so sweet and fluffy to our contemporary Western ears. It was war. Those are fighting words. Grace and peace to you from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's in? You know, Paul sets the table for grace and peace, not just this way, but this way. Not just for personal holiness, but for a social holiness. This is this a necessary byproduct and outworking of personal holiness. He has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so he helps Onesimus get over his fears, perhaps, by starting out the gate to Philemon, my beloved fellow worker. But he also helps Philemon when he says things of Onesimus like, I know he was formerly useless to you. That's verse 11. 
I know he robbed you. That's verse 18. But then verse 10, he's my child. Verse 11, he's useful. Verse 12, I am in sending him to you, I'm sending you my very heart. This, this man you think and your whole community thinks betrayed you, this prodigal son of yours, he's my very heart, and I'm sending him back to you. And if he has wronged you or if he owes you, charge it to my account, Paul says. Oh, and by the way, you owe me your whole freaking life because you are in Christ because of me. I can't ask you for too much. Paul sets the table. And, and, and he's, he's saying in, in, in such a persuasive, beautiful way, there is no person so good that they are exempt from the need to repent and change. And there is no person that is so far gone and bad that they're exempt from the possibility of redemption. So what's the end game? Very quickly, the secondary end game, the byproduct end game is abolition and liberation. You notice how he does not fight for abolition here. He leaves that later for the likes of Wilberforce and the likes of King and the likes of uh, John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace who was in Wilberforce's ear as Wilberforce fought for abolition, right? He sees his place in history and he says, if we can change, it's as if he's saying, if we can change the relational conditions, if we can change the way that this man and this man interact together and then get the whole family around it and then get their whole church community around it, they can become a prototype. And then we can send it to other individuals and families and churches and they can become a prototype in their reason and then we can keep doing it. And, and all of a sudden we'll have all of these Christian community, communities colonizing their worldly slave driving cities and showing them a better way, colonizing them with love, infecting the world with love, as the historians say. You know, one commentary says this. You know, the first goal is love. The byproduct of that is abolition and liberation. Because in the context of love, abolition and liberation starve. You know, if you're a cancer patient, you know you got to avoid sugar, right? Because because cancer cells just thrive on sugar. So deprive them, starve them as part of your strategy. And what Paul is saying is I want you to starve your community of any notion that it's okay for one person to own another person and to drive another person as a means of persuasion. One commentary says this letter moves into the realm of personal relationships where the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. So it set the conditions. This is why many U.S. slave owners did not want their slaves to become Christians because they were terrified of the book of Philemon and what it would mean for them economically. This is the way we do things. But here's the reality I think Paul's trying to drive both of these men and all of us to. Every Christian is a slave, and every Christian is free. Slave to sin formerly, now a slave to Christ, which makes you free indeed. And so he uses these key words which have to do with our relationship with God and the way it works out relationally. Ephesians 2 talks about how dividing walls of hostility are torn down between heaven and earth 
between holiness and sinfulness and between even Jew and Gentile, the greatest hostilities. The key words are grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Internalizing grace and peace is always going to lead to personal holiness, the outcome of which is also social holiness, which basically means Jesus meant it when he said love your enemy and pray for those who don't pray for you back. So if you can do that, and if you can start inside the family of God doing that, the whole world's gonna look, they're gonna know your mind, they're gonna say, I don't know how they do that, but I wonder if somebody like me or, or people like us can get in on that. Like the witness of the church stood or fell, Jesus said, on whether or not they could love across the lines of difference. And this includes Matthew and Simon, political opposites, both called to be part of the 12. It includes personality opposites, Peter, who's bulling a china shop, and John, who's, you know, super tender and, you know, snuggling up to Jesus, you know, like he's, he's, he's you know, really warm and intimate kind of guy. And, and somehow they're not just part of the 12, but Peter and John's are, John are part of the three. He means this stuff. But this is a scandal, like the degree to which, like, like I know like some of us, we're going to say like I'm in a conflict over here and a conflict over here, but our conflicts are relatively mild. And so, so let me tell you, and I don't want to say that everybody's conflicts are relatively mild because I know some of you are at war in your homes, some of you are at war at work, some of you are at war in your neighborhoods and in other places, some of you are at war in your own hearts. Maybe this story can provide some encouragement about what God can do even when our hearts are at war. So from this stage, a few years ago, a man named Anthony Ray Hinton came and told his story. He's an African-American man now, probably somewhere in his 60s, and his story was this. He spent 30 years, over 30 years on death row, lost 30 years of living free on death row for a crime he didn't commit, for, for, for a conviction that he was set up for based on racial motivation to put the black man behind bars even though the black man wasn't anywhere in sight when this crime was committed. And, you know, it's a long story. You can watch the movie Just Mercy to see how he was released or, or read, read his book, The Sun Does Shine, which is his testimonial. But one of the stories he, he tells in that book is that on death row, he met another man, a white man named Henry Hayes, who stabbed and lynched and killed a boy for being black. And that's why he was on death row. He was also the son of one of the foremost leaders in the Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klan. And so you can imagine what it might have felt like to Anthony Ray Hinton for his cell to be right next to Henry Hayes' cell. And all that, 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 could, that could come into to Ray Hinton's mind in that predicament was the words that his mother reminded him of every single day when he was facing, you know, all kinds of discrimination. Remember, 
Jesus Christ loved you when you were his enemy, so you are to love your enemies. That was his mother's voice haunting him, her Christ-haunted voice haunting him as he was right next to this, this man who had you know, represented all that was evil in the world from his perspective. And what happened was Hinton decided he was going to move toward this man because this man, they set a date for his death, for, for Henry Hay's death. And instead of saying, ah, you're getting what you deserve, ah, you're getting real justice, Hinton comforted him with words found in the most impactful book in the history of the world, where Jesus says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, where, 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 where we're told that, that there's nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, who tells us that, that people, who, anyone who cries, God have mercy on me, the sinner, will be liberated and sent home justified that any prodigal that, that, that has gone away and squandered all of the family resources and torn, you know, drug the family name through the mud and brought shame on his community, the moment he starts coming home asking if he can come back as a slave, the father says, absolutely not. You're coming back as a son and as a brother. Welcome home. We have to celebrate. So Hinton shared those kinds of stories from the gospel with Henry Hayes and gave him the most comforting words as he was about to go to his own death and be executed. Like Hinton was one of the last conversations that Henry Hayes wanted to have about what happens next post-lethal injection. And Henry was invited to say some last words before they they meted out his sentence, and here were his words. All my life, my father, mother, and community taught me to hate the very people who would later teach me how to love. Tonight, as I leave this world, I leave finally knowing what love feels like. If God can do that kind of thing there, what might God be able to do in our various painful relational situations? And what might God be calling us to do? What step? It's interesting, he's calling both of these men to take steps at the same time. He doesn't say to one of them, hey, wait till he takes the first step and then you take the first step. And then he takes another step and then you take another step. He's just saying to both of them, move toward one another and let's put Jesus in the center of all that and let's see what God does. And looking back in history, this tiny little book written from a, an obscure prison cell to a tiny little house church has changed the world, is still changing the world, because that's what God can do for all of us when we prioritize love over our own damned rights. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, this is, this is both a very weird and, and also seemingly very appropriate message to preach on Mother's Day because your heart is so heavily for grace and peace between your children. 
And so, Lord, for everyone in here that is feeling any kind of tension, any kind of relational setback with especially another brother or sister in Christ, or maybe somebody even in their own household, I pray that, that the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit that enabled these two men to come together, that enabled things like Ray Hinton and Henry Hayes to happen, would also bring that kind of resurrection power into our relationships as well, wherever we might be in them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to ask you to, um, let's stand together as the kids come in, uh, and this will not be to sing, uh, but instead it will be to, um, as Tim Keller likes to say, screw down into our hearts, drill down into our hearts the things that God has put on our hearts today uh, by praying a prayer together of affirmation of what Paul is saying in the book of Philemon. So let's, let's pray together. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy.